Ellis, the show that takes you on a deep dive into the happenings of the hospitality industry. Now, sometimes there's a focus on culture, and sometimes there's a focus on travel trends, and sometimes there's a focus on passion projects, but it all comes back to the industry. And here we are. We're back at the beautiful Wine Lair, the private wine club in downtown DC, adjacent to the Ritz-Carlton. So excited to now be doing Industry Night here. Now, for those of you who are new to Industry Night or to me, um, welcome, and a little bit of background on me. Um, I've been covering the DC food, wine, and hospitality scene for over 20 years through a variety of outlets print, TV, online, radio, podcasts, and social. Um, if you live in the DC metro area, then you better be reading the list, areyouwanted.com, the online e-zine that tells you everything happening in the DC metro area. We have a calendar just chock full of food and wine events happening all over the city and beyond. Uh, of course, every opening that's happening, every opening that's coming soon, and a whole bunch of promotions that are happening around the area. So if you're thinking Thanksgiving, if you're thinking Christmas, New Year's, all that kind of stuff, we got you covered. Um, of course, you tune in every Sunday on 1500 to Foodie and the Beast, DC's only food and wine variety show with me and my husband, David, 14 years strong. Um, and of course, you follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and sometimes Twitter. No, always Twitter. I just don't know if it will be Twitter forever at N-Y-C-C-I-N-E-L-L-I-S. Uh, okay, so now that we are in the thick of November, it's so exciting. Uh, because the city is vibrating with so much positive energy. Restaurant, bars, and hotels are busy, and I love it. Um, of course, I've been out and about, and I just want to mention a couple of the places that I've um, been to, and you may have seen me skulking about. So, no, it's been a minute since I've been to Rose's Luxury. During the height of the pandemic, um, we definitely did order in from Roses at Home, and it was, you know, pretty delicious. But I hadn't been to the space in a while, and um, it's still got that really cool casual vibe. The food and service is still completely on point. But we popped up at the bar because who doesn't want to sit in front of the kitchen? I love dinner and a show. And um, we ate our way through, you know, some of the old standbys, like that Chinese sausage with the lychees. But we also had some of the newbies, which was the steak and eggs. And I gotta be honest with you, there is no reason to have steak anywhere else, like a steakhouse, because their steak is ridiculous. Um, also, huge shout out to our service. Nam was our server and he was amazing. I totally read the room when it came to my, my group. Um, casual, appropriately chatty, make great suggestions, and totally elevated our experience. So a big shout out and thank you to Nam. Um, I was at Cheese Teak, their annual holiday and wine tasting expo. That shop is such a treasure. Um, it's filled with hundreds of cheeses. And you know, I'm um, like a cheese whore. I love cheese. Stacks and stacks of food-friendly wine and other cheese accoutrements. Um, it's one of my favorite places to go to just kind of walk around. Um, and we just did an industry night there for this event. They had incredible offerings of wine, tastes of caviar and cheeses, um, and they even savored some champagne. So stay tuned. That's coming up on another episode. And since your girl here is backing out the door to put her tush in the sand at Grand Coss in St. Martin, what I should be doing is running around, crossing every T and dotting every I and making sure all my work is in good place before I leave. But instead, I was like, screw that. I'm going to the Waldorf Astoria because I was invited in to check out the new spa. And who would say no to that? Uh -huh. I mean, seriously. Now, I did refuse to go to that property for basically six years because of its previous ownership. But now that it is under new ownership, and it is the Waldorf Astoria, I did allow myself to go in. So the spa is pretty fabulous. Um, lovely hushed conversations when you walk in, a eucalyptus steam in the well-appointed women's room, the sanctuary area, you know, the place where you kind of hang out before you have your service, has a trickling waterfall and these little pods that you can encase yourself in so nobody can bother you. Um, oh, and the salt room. There's a pink Himalayan salt room. I don't know what it does, but I sat in it for like 20 minutes and it, it, it rushes around pink Himalayan salt, which is supposed to be very healthy for you. And then there's uh, red lights, which is also very good for you. So I hung out in there also before my service. Yes, I got there early. And, um, and then I had a wonderful 75 minute, totally luxurious, totally indulgent facial. Um, where she really massaged, 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 and product my face 
Um, I'm all about lymphatic drainage, and I'm pretty sure after 75 minutes that it happened. So with the holidays in mind, uh, if you're thinking of great gifts or doing something with friends and family um, and don't mind spending a little bit of money, I recommend the Waldorf Astoria Spa. So let's get on to today's show. Uh, Michelin's 2021 Washington, D.C. Sommelier Award winner. Dun, dun, dun. Bill Jensen. That's who he is. Uh, he's also the co-owner and beverage director of Tale of Goat and Revelers Hour in Adams Morgan. Um, he loves Riesling so much that he's on the steering committee for Flixcursion, which is an internal Riesling expo in the Finger Lakes, which we're going to get into because y'all know how I feel about that Riesling. Um, at the height of pandemic lockdown, Bill got creative and launched the widely beloved Tale of Goat Wine School. And I'm quoting him here, but he believes that drinking should be an act of replenishment, renewal, and discovery. And I love that. And we're going to get into it. But before we do, we're going to test him because in with me is Alyssa Pelcola. She is the general manager here at the Wine Lair. So Alyssa, I haven't had an opportunity yet to chat with you on air about the Wine Lair. We had Chef on, we had John on, but tell us a little bit of your role here. Sure. So I'm I'm the general manager. I uh, really am in charge of Making sure members' experiences here are great. We mm-hmm. uh, we take great pride in taking wonderful care of our members, and we uh, full service you know dining and uh, drinking. We also help them uh, buy buy uh, locate and purchase rare uh, vintages. And I was going to ask uh, about that. Do they come to you as a resource to be like, hey, well, how do I get my hands on this? Sometimes, mm-hmm. absolutely, and other times we're offered um, lists from you know estate sales or you know the private seller sales. And we are able to pass those on to our members as well. So they have the opportunity to purchase, um, you know, back vintages and, and rare bourbons and scotches and other things. Um, so we, we pass those opportunities on to our members, and that's one of the benefits of, of membership. And what about curation here? So because you have, you know, a beautiful cellar where people mm-hmm. can uh, locker mm-hmm. their wines, but you still offer wine. Because sure. you would think people would come and just drink their own stuff. Right. Well, that, that does happen a lot, but also, you know, sometimes people come in and, you know, they're with a group of people. It's a business dinner, and maybe they don't want to give them their nice ones, or maybe sometimes, you know, someone <laughs> at the table doesn't drink red wine, and they have a cellar full of Napa Valley Cab. You know, they, mm. that they, you know, d- that doesn't really fit what they're what they're doing. So we do have a full wine list, and we do offer um, full, you know, full taste for everyone. And we also put on uh, our we do want, offer wine pairings when we put on events. So we have, you know, a full, a full range of wines that we offer as well. Okay. And um, you guys do have some events coming we up. Do. do you want to talk about them? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, we have actually a number of events coming up for the holiday season. Um, these are available to the public. Um, tickets are available on Talk. Um, if you'd mm-hmm. like to look them up, just Winelayer Wine Layer DC on Talk, and you will find a list of everything we have available I mean, right now. Shameless plug, but of course they'll be on the list or youonit.com of as course. well. I mean, seriously. But go ahead. So uh, we have... Um, a rare bourbon tasting with uh, executive bourbon steward Chaz Lum. We have uh, one this Saturday, November 19th, and one Friday, December 16th. Great. Um, he has access to very rare collector um, bourbons that are really hard to get your hands on. And if you ever have the, this gives you the opportunity to try them without having to sh- uh, shuck out $1,000 or more a bottle <laughs> to get your hands on them on the secondary market. So if you have interest in bourbon, if you want to try some really um, interesting bourbons that you probably won't find elsewhere, mm-hmm. it's a great, great chance to do that. And he'll give a whole lot of information about them as well. I love that. Yeah, it's, it's fantastic. Um, we also have um, David Hale of Gemini Wine Company coming in. Mm-hmm. We've done a series of events with him as well. Uh, this one is Tuesday, December 6th. He's going to be giving recommendations on holiday hosting and gifting. So wines to serve to different size gatherings uh, if you're hosting a party. And also things that are uh, make wonderful gifts if you are looking to gift wine at the holidays. Well, I think that's interesting because I do think people try to figure out, like if you're trying to serve a decent wine at your holiday party, mm-hmm. you know, do you just get like cases of bottles or do you go big and get large format bottles? Like what's the smarter way to go? I mean, that's... I think I think large formats can be intimidating for for some people at home, mm-hmm. um, but I think that that's a great fun option. I also think it's yeah. so impressive, like yeah. walk around yeah, with definitely. a gas bottle, you know. Definitely, um, but uh, you know, I think that he he's looking at sort of like, I think his focus is going to be sort of you know, uh, if you're looking for something special for a more intimate gathering, or if you want to say you know, impress people, but have something that's affordable to, for a larger larger gathering. So okay. something sort of like you know, trying to. Fit all occasions, different cool. different options. Yeah. Great. Okay, so 
You're going to join us at the end of the show. Mm-hmm. But in the interim, um, we're going to give our uh, big psalm here a little test. So uh, what do we got going on here? So we have uh, two white wines. Okay. Um, well, now we know they're white, so that's a hint. Yes. Okay. Two white wines <laughs> from different different areas. They're not super similar, um, but just fun things to enjoy while you're chatting. And we also have a little cheese and sugar cookery. Thank you. Absolutely, please. Okay, so while you're pouring the wines, just make sure we know which one is one and two. Bill, move your tush next to me, please. So the glass on the left is going to be number one. Okay, great. I'm going to put this here so I don't forget which one is one and which one is two because I have no memory left. There we go. Okay, I got one. Okay, so hey, Bill. Thank you so much for joining me. Hey, Rose. You know what's not in your bio, Bill? What's, what's not in your bio is that you too have a podcast. We had the the bio is on the podcast landing page. So, okay. so at that point, uh, hopefully you know about the podcast. But yes, I have a podcast as well. Uh-huh. Um, I was a guest uh, of it. If uh, yes, and we're thrilled to have you. That that is yet to be posted though. So I, okay. I like to I like to bank content. Um, I hear you. Uh, and then slowly meet it out. But the podcast is called The Universe in a Glass, mm-hmm. and uh, we host friends and trade bottles and talk about. The wines that we're drinking and all the stories uh, that come along with them. And we drop new content, new episodes uh, every Wednesday. Uh, mm-hmm. We are on uh, most major platforms, so Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Okay, and, Bill. I'm going to let uh, you do your advertisement at the end of the show. Okay, okay. So perfect. right now. I, I jumped, but I, I wanted to make sure uh, that you um, did tell people that you had a podcast. And I yes. do want them to find it because it is excellent. Thank you so much. So but let's talk a little bit about you and um, how you got into the business. Like, mm-hmm. not every kid thinks, ooh, I can't wait to, like, be old enough where I can, like, swirl and sniff wine and spit it out. No, it's not like sommeliers come to career day. Right, And, you exactly. know, elbow out the firemen um, that are entertaining kindergartens. No, uh, it's kind of a fundamentally preposterous way to earn a living. Um, and it's not, you know, how I ever uh, expected to, um, you know, kind of conduct my professional life. But I you never, I, I kind of like crashed out of college um, in my early 20s and didn't know what to do with myself and landed in the restaurant world. And, and one of my favorite things about restaurants is, um, you know, the restaurant industry is a, a bit of like an artist colony for people who uh, feel out of place in mm-hmm. other, you know, kind of lines of work. And it became a home for me. And I had always loved food and came to really adore wine and, um, you know, want to understand everything about it um, mm-hmm. and how it... But who was it who, like, sort of piqued your interest first? Did somebody pour you a glass of wine or was it something about the service It's, it's funny, like, um, uh, a lot of wine people have this road to Damascus experience, this bottle that, you know, opened their eyes to what wine could be. I, I think that was more of an unfolding for me. I don't think there was one bottle. I can remember... The first time I opened a bottle for a table, though, um, okay. and that was <laughs> was that a mistake? Yeah, no, that was that was that was entirely that was entirely on purpose. So I I had been at the staff training at Two Amy's, uh, uh-huh. which was my first real restaurant job, which is that's a know, good I- place to start. Iconic, yeah, uh, Clover Park uh, Neapolitan Pizzeria, and um, I recommended to this table this glass of um, uh, I believe it's Ionico, uh, which is this kind of quintessential Southern Italian. Our red wine from mm-hmm. uh, Basilicata, and uh, you know, I, I described it for them. They liked the description. I opened it for them, and I can just remember thinking, you know, this doesn't suck. This is a pretty cool way to earn a living. Right. And um, I remember, I remember that more than any single single bottle that turned me on. Um, I think it's just been, you know, this professional life of falling deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole um, for the sake of the, the wines that I adore. Well, I and I love that. And then from two Amy's, did you go to Comey from two Amy's? No, uh, I had other other professional lives. So um, I I worked as a political organizer. Um, I worked for the city, organizing a jobs program. But um, I was always kind of dabbling. Uh, you know, when I needed to pay the bills, uh, uh, I was I was working at restaurants. And so uh, my next restaurant job was at Comey, and I worked there um, off and on for about a decade. And okay. so when you started at Comey. Because, like, we went to Comey. When Johnny first opened Comey, you know, it still had, like, the pizza oven in it. Yeah, well, so, so, yeah, and he offered lunch. Um, right. It was an old Roberto Donna space. It was, yes. It was much more Yo casual. Radicchio. Yeah, exactly. It was a more casual joint. Um, and that's how I first experienced it. When I trained there initially, 
they were still offering a la carte and tasting menu. Uh -huh. But once I started, they moved to tasting menu all the time. So mm -hmm. my experience of Comey as uh, a server and then ultimately as a manager and then the person pouring wine there was as, you know, more of, um, I mean, I, I hesitate to say cold fine dining, but that's that's what it was. That's what it became. Um, Absolutely. No, I think, um, I think the concept of Comey sort of shared this new way of fine dining. Right. That yeah. You could you could have this elevated food and wine experience without you know sort of the my pleasure. Do you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah. Hopefully like, it wasn't stuffy. That was right? yeah. That was that was always the hope um, in terms of the character service. It was always the hope that you know people could have fun there. They could feel relaxed there. They could be their true selves there. That mm -hmm. they weren't you know performing the role of people in a particular restaurant context. Um, but you know all the food was just you know on point and yeah, amazing. And, and, and the service was just as concerned, you know, with, um, you know, making sure that everything technically was on point right. and, and the wines were elevated and all that other stuff, but, um, that it just felt more approachable for the sake of the just self of it all. Well, and I think you now see things like Aaron Silverman, you see these other restaurant now that are sort of the extension of what? Yeah. It's, it's kind of wild. Like, and, and I think stateside, especially people, very often they want, you know, fine dining kind of level food and drink, but they don't necessarily always want the trappings that come with it for the mm -hmm. sake of, you know, an experience that is, you know, seemingly stuffy. Um, and there are a lot of people doing that, doing that really well. And certainly Aaron, um, uh, you know, in DC, um, you know, has made a career out of it. But I also think you and your partners in opening up to help go took some of the as well, right? So yeah, when, I mean, when it came time for you to open up Tale of Goat, what was it that you wanted first for the restaurant? Like, how would you explain the restaurant to people? Um, when people asked us what our, our concept was, which is always like a horrifying word to me in the context of, um, you know, restaurants. Well, because it sounds so final. Yeah, it always sounds like, um, I, I don't know. It, it just sounds, you know, to me, you know, the, the concept is you have a particular, you know, kind of food you want to book or, or, or whatever, you know, concept just, it, it sounds, I don't know, alien. It's, it sounds like, you know, you're, you're, you know, artificially inflating something. But, okay. <laughs> uh, um, you know, for our sake, our concept was to serve the food we wanted to eat, to play the music we wanted to hear and, you know, serve the drink that we wanted to drink. And um, we wanted to be... I'm sure you're... you're business partners were like the money people were like, yeah, we need a little more details. <laughs> no, I mean like fill uh, in the spaces. There, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that would have been mostly Jill, but, um, you know, I, I think, I think we were comfortable with that. And, and, you know, we, um, you know, had come of age and, you know, had strong ideas about what we loved in, you know, this hugely successful environment for the sake of Comey and little Sarah. So mm -hmm. we definitely had the strength of our own convictions and had confidence that people, um, would follow us. And, you know, the restaurant, broadly speaking, is Mediterranean. You know, we wanted it to be a place that was sufficiently neighborhoody that people could be regulars there. Mm -hmm. um, but we also wanted it for other folks to occupy, you know, this destination dining. Um, you, know, now, you're, of, you, you have straddled that tough line. I will be honest. I think a lot of restaurants want to be both and have not straddled it, but you really have your neighborhood in Adams Morgan, because you are off the beaten path in Adams Morgan. You're like behind the corner. Like you have to find you. People who live in Adams Morgan or DuPont Circle, um, Mount Pleasant, know you, go to you, they're regulars. But then you have people like me, you know, who lives in Kensington, Maryland, or maybe I'm a bad example because I go eat out all the time. But then you have people who are like, oh, I've heard it too look good. I really want to, it's on my list, you know, and people make it is a destination. Yeah, so they, I think you're lucky or fortunate to have done. Yeah, that. and they bring they bring their parents in. They celebrate anniversaries and birthdays there. Mm -hmm. And you know, I think to have that energy of this consistent presence of people that reflect the character of the neighborhood you're in, coupled mm -hmm. with you know this energy of people that are out for a celebratory you know meal is right. is really special. Um, and, and it's something that you know I, I never want to take for granted. Well. That's um, a very generous of spirit of you. You should never take that for granted. But, and lots of people do, which is why they don't succeed. But before we get into how you built your wine program there, let's take a look at glass number one. Yeah, sure. Okay. It's on the left. Yes, the one on the left, which um, is hard for me because I don't always remember my right from left. But So it should be, so I, I asked before we um, uh, 
came into this broadcast that these were tested. So, tradi yeah. so traditionally in a blind tasting context, you would have like a universe of wines that are in play. Sure. Um, so you have some idea. Yeah, well, no, yeah, just because you have classic archetypes and then sure. you have not so classic archetypes. So these may or may not be classic archetypes. So I'm going to hedge my bets a little bit there, Nikki. But, so. Okay. Well, I will say the only time, one other time that I did this, yeah. and I am bragging, um, when Mark Culler was still alive. Yeah, yeah. Mark, so Mark Culler, you know, had Absolutely. like 10,000 bottle wine well, he, seller he, his in seller his was house. Well, his seller was so big, it ultimately opened a restaurant. To, yes, uh, right, yeah. to hold all of his wine. Exactly. So he had a dinner in his house, and this is before Jose Andres. He was Jose Andres, but he wasn't Jose Andres the way he is today. And um, Jose cooked for us, and we all had to bring, oh my God, drink that wine. <laughs> no, no, that's, sorry. So my mom, so my mom uh, gives me all sorts of shit for this, but this is, uh, um, that's how I taste wine. And the idea is that drawing air in uh, oxygenates the wine and, and, right. and yeah, it, it makes it, you know, more um, readily available for you for the, for the sake of taste of it all. And I can't turn that off. I even taste like, you know, really crappy wedding reception wine that way. Um, okay, you just uh, can't help yourself. Yeah, right. exactly. Before we discuss the wine, I'll just yeah. finish my story. So Jose Andres cooked dinner at Mark's house. Yeah. And Mark was like, I want everybody to bring a bottle of wine blind. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, what do you get for the man who has every wine in the world? Like, I'm going to bring a bottle That's of wine. It was really intimidating. And this is, I mean, Mark was still alive. This is years ago. So, you know, I was like, okay, Jose is coming. I'm going to get a Spanish wine. But like, I was like, maybe I'll get a cava. Like at that time, the kind of cavas you could buy, they were all like $12.99. I'm like, I am not buying a $12.99 there's, there's, there's bougie. There's bougie cava. <laughs> there is now. Yeah. But there wasn't then. Okay. And so, um, you know, Sebastian was there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was a whole... It's a murderer's row, people to present. Oh, my to. God. It was... But it was... That was crazy. What would you land on? Come on, you didn't... Uh... I landed on some kava, man. I did. Right? I did okay. pick a kava. I didn't know what See, to do. See, in, in situations like that, sometimes I like to zig where others zag. So, mm -hmm. you know, if you're presenting to something to somebody and they, like, you know, know something backwards and forwards, sometimes I try to do, like, the blue ocean theory thing and just, you know, present something that's totally... Totally, yes. Yeah, right. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, it was intimidating. Okay. What do you so, think of this? This doesn't seem like a Nikki to me. It's not. Yeah, yeah. So this this is a, um, you know, when I taste this, typically, you know, the first thing that you'll evaluate when you smell a wine, and I think people rush past the smell mm -hmm. um, a lot of times when they when they evaluate a wine. Um, I can smell the sugar in it. That's uh, how it feels to me. Like it smells, it doesn't well, smell sweet, but. So there's something like toppied, honeyed. Uh, maybe about that's it, the honey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um. Uh, there's a little mustiness to it as well. So um, uh, this is a wine that maybe has a little bit of age to it. And when uh, servers are tasting it for the first time, mm -hmm. instead of describing uh, a, uh, a set of smells, whether it's fruit or non-fruit or whatever, initially when they're smelling a wine, I always ask them to talk about the development of mm -hmm. the wine. So does this smell youthful, like adolescent, mature, or past its prime? And, right. And this is like developing. You know, it's, yes. it's not in its infancy. No. You know, it's definitely not past its prime either, but it's somewhere along that, you know, um, middle arc of the aging curve. Yes. But it's not heavy wood. No. So it's uh, it has this, like, really oxidative streak, which I, which I really dig. And, right. and um, there's something distinctly saline um, yes. about it. But yeah. there's something about how, what it leaves on the tongue at the end. Mm -hmm. It's not oily, but it's got a... You know what I mean? Like, it's got a... It leaves something on the tongue. Yeah, it's absolutely. It's not clean. I guess there's, the best way to Well, there's it. there's a little unctuousness to it. And yeah, I think oily is not a bad word for that. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. No, oily is a great word for that. And and honestly, in the context of a white wine, a lot of times that can be um, evidence of, of age on the yeah. wine. Wines tend to, um, perceptually, they drop acid and they gain breadth as they mm. age. And they give you that kind of perception of being more mouth-coating, um, mm. more more viscous than they were in their Right. Well, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. And usually I don't mind it, but this one, I don't... It, there's a, just like you said, that honey flavor. I like something that's just a little crisper, personally. Yeah. Especially since, like, I'm not eating anything, like, just for something to drink. Yeah, and it's, I'm a weirdo in the sense that I just like the exercise of drinking, and I like to try to, like, wrap my head I around. I say I wouldn't drink No, 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 no. <laughs> But, you know, like, you know, the, the whole, this whole, like, piecing together yes. of, of what the thing is, you know, I could hate this. Right. But the act of piecing it together is still, Fine. you know, yeah, it's like turns a me on. Yeah, yeah exactly. I get it. All right, so let's, so we have Tilt Goat, and then you open Reveler's Hour, also yeah. during the pandemic. Now, I want to mention both. I want to talk about what Reveler's Hour sure. is, but then I want to talk about how you develop wine programs sure. for the concepts, because I think 
I think when somebody goes into a restaurant and they open up the wine list, they don't, not only are, are stories important to you, narratives are really important to you, but yeah. you know, people just don't understand how it's done. Sure. So I love a little like peek behind the curtain. Yeah. So I think you know, something that matters to me is that whatever you're doing, you take on a perspective. And when it comes to restaurants, people typically do that for the sake of a particular cuisine. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they're not going to try to be all things for, you know, to all people. You know, we are a Mediterranean restaurant. You know, both places are kind of rooted in, you know, the Southern Mediterranean, Cucina Povera. And, you know, that's, that's, that's part of our, our being. You know, we will occasionally, you know, adopt individual flavors from other corners of the world, stuff like that. But, you know, that Mediterranean with like mid-Atlantic pantry, mm -hmm. you know, that is our DNA. And I think sometimes that guests expect a wine list to be all things to all people. You know, they want like the wine equivalent of pizza and sushi and like a burger all on the same menu, which is to say that they want- That's all, so funny to me. Well, they want all the wines they're used to. They expect like a constitutional right to, you know, New Zealand Savi B and Napa Cab and all these other things. and. I find it much more interesting when people are, you know, daring to narrow a focus and say, like, out of the universe of wines, this is what I want you um, to try on. Now, I think as a beverage person, as like the curator of that experience, it's really important to find within that world bullet points that appeal to a variety of different tastes. So, you know, if you're not going to have Kiwi Sabi B and Napa Cab, you know, you should have something that will scratch that age for people. Sure. You know, it doesn't have to be those things, but you should try to find something that will, you know, cater um, to but, those. But brands. I also think it can be intimidating for somebody like, listen, I, I have a like B-level understanding of wine. I know what I like. I, I talk to enough people about wine, but it is intimidating when you walk into a restaurant and it's a, a short wine list or whatever wine list. And you're like, yeah, I, nope, I don't. I don't know any of them. I don't know a single one. So initially my first concern is like, okay, I don't know anything, which makes me feel stupid, which I know is not the intention, yeah. but then, you know, I want to have a conversation with somebody who's going to walk me through it. So my hope is for a restaurant that puts together a list that does stretch the patrons, uh, knowledge that either the server or the son or whoever's there is like, let's talk. What do you no, like? That's killer. Get that's, into it. I think, you know what I mean? So, and I think that's something sometimes restaurants miss. So I think, you know, there are a lot of restaurants that want to have a more adventurous esoteric list, but sometimes they miss the boat because they don't, you know, create a service culture that makes that approachable for their guests. Right. And so we spend a ton of time across both restaurants training the staff uh, so that they are in a position to answer questions about, you know, the kind of wines that are unpronounceable or utterly unfamiliar for the mass of our, our guests. And, you know, I really light up when you know, these servers that we have spent, you know, so much time and money training up, you know, are just as excited about these individual data points as I am and that they are, you know, acting as these stewards, as mm -hmm. these, you know, um, Virgils, you know, uh, through the wine underworld for the sake of all of our guests that are, you know, maybe intimidated. Um, right. and, and, you know, we want to blow this all up. You know, wine is something that has so much baggage when it comes to you know, sexism and elitism and racism and all this other crap that it shouldn't have, you know, right. it should be, you know, just as approachable and universal for the dimension of taste as anything else on our, on our plate here. And, you know, for a variety of reasons, historically it hasn't been. And, um, you know, we want to engage people and celebrate this thing that we love, but do it in a way that, you know, invites people in as opposed to kind of erecting false barriers to entry. Well, I think that's, a, a, a real shift for, you know, if you think about dining in the 70s and 80s yeah. of what wine was. I'll never forget when my husband and I first started dating, he took me to a, re a French restaurant here that no longer exists, uh, La Cote d'Or. And um, my husband didn't know anything about wine. And granted, I was only 26 years old. But um, the son refused to engage with me. He only wanted to engage with David. Yeah. And David was like, yeah. talk to the lady. And he was like, Okay. I mean, he was so like exhausted I mean, like, by me. Yeah, that's like old school friendship. So yeah. totally old school friendship. And I mean, they talk about, so Becky Wasserman is a seminal figure in, in, in bringing French wine, Burgundy in particular, which would be a Cote d'Or reference to right. America. She and talks I about- I love my white Burgundy. <laughs> yeah, well, she talks about producers, this is in the, you know, late 70s, early 80s, who wouldn't let her in the cellar 
because they were too super. Why? Like, is it women? Uh, well, no, it's a sense of spiritual. Something? Yeah, it, uh, it, it can, it can. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they exist at the intersection of you know spiritual forces and, mm-hmm. and science and all these other things, and that's what's so cool about it. All right, let's try the second one. All right. Okay. Uh, so, um, just looking at this wine, uh, something that you should you definitely like on camera right. um, is evident is darker in color. So that tells us that likely this has a little more age on it. Yes. Um, uh, and it smells mustier, and I already know what this is. Um, uh, and I had a sense that you were going to do this to me. So uh, this smells like a gas station, but in a fun way. Um, okay, this yeah, does yeah. not taste like what it smells mm-hmm. at all. So that's the fun of this wine, which is definitely a Riesling, but it's, it's never totally enough to say. Riesling. Well, it's nev- <laughs> never enough to say that it's Riesling because there are a lot of different styles of Riesling across different corners of you know, um, the Riesling world. Uh, so you got to do better than that and say what part of the Riesling world this is from and then what, what's the vintage. Well, but it's not New York. This is not New York State Riesling. Very good. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, this is most likely German Riesling. Um, uh, and it's exactly what I don't like about the wine. Okay, so so dish though. What, what, uh, what don't you like so about it? So actually, now the other wine looks a lot better to me. <laughs> by, by comparison. But for this, so it doesn't have a large scent, which totally kind of threw me off. And, um, you know, when I tasted the tongue hit sugar right away. So as I explained it to you off yeah. there before, I mentally Riesling to me equals sugar. Yeah. And it's a mental thing to me. I know there are plenty of Rieslings that don't have the high sugar content, but it's, it, it's, it has a bad reputation of being a sweet wine. Yeah. I know that that does not relate to all Rieslings. But that's where my mental break. No, is that's okay. Wild. A lot of people share that mental block. Um, Riesling. There is no single Riesling. Um, one of my um, psalm heroes, uh, Paul Greco, he's at Terroir mm-hmm. in New York. He says the greatness of Riesling is in its multiplicity of styles. He says the you know great failing of Riesling is in its multiplicity of styles. So no one, it's the box of chocolates. No right. one ever knows what they're going to get. Right. Um, but Chardonnay doesn't have the same issues to me it, maybe it, to other people it like, can for the sake of the variable of oak yes um, well because yeah. california chardonnays you know i think to appeal to a certain demographic um when as oaky and buttery and as yeah. yellow as they could get because they could do it cheaply and there was a certain demographic that really like went for that yeah, do you yeah. know what i mean instead of like the clean you know chardonnays out of france do you know what i mean yeah. and there are great chardonnays well, and my, my wife will often say like i don't like chardonnay but i love white burgundy the great yeah. irony being that white burgundy is chardonnay. chardonnay yeah exactly right. so you know for me um i find recently music fascinating so like when you taste something that's sweet evolutionarily we're hardwired for that just to be a flack right because you know we want sweet you know sweet you know allows us to survive as, mm-hmm. a, as a species so that's always going to be the first thing that right. you know triggers you um and so that's 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 natural, you know, right. that's biological. Uh, what what I dig about Riesling is this sense of balance. So it's this tension to the mm-hmm. wine. So it's not just sweet. It's also insanely acid driven. And it's, I have to taste it it's the Hold sweet, on. it's the sweet tart. It's the interplay of those two variables that, you know, um, you know, cinches it and that makes this great. And then particularly the food can be super fun. Like, um, I don't know, like soft cheese there yeah. with this be banging, I promise. Right. Um, and you know, the other thing about Riesling that's super cool to my mind, it's very expressive. So we said like diesel, petrol, you know, kind of gassy. Yeah. Um, uh, there's a really poetic word called petrichor. Mm-hmm. Petrichor is a smell of pavement after it rains. Um, I have never heard that word, yeah, but now word. I am filing yeah. that into yeah, my, exactly. that great, my great word. Okay. Um, but then there's something like honeyed. And, you know, this wine smells kind of funky. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and you get all of that, what's it called, TDN, but on the nose, but then on the palate, it becomes something else entirely. And mm-hmm. you get this, like, poached pear, honeyed um, exoticism about it that um, is very different. And I love that tension and okay. that, like, disjuncture between, on the one hand, the smell, and on the one hand, the taste. Now, this would be, like, during pandemic, I'd bring wine home to my wife on, on Fridays because we, we had, like, we weren't doing as much in service and it was amazing. It was awesome. Um, uh, not working service and actually spending nights with your wife was the fucking best. Right. Um, uh, but um, I would bring stuff like this home and she would like try it and say, yeah, this is good, but this is not a Friday night wine, you know, because it's not just easy and refreshing mm-hmm. and you can't like throw it back the same way. This is a little cerebral. And, right. you know, it's something kind of you pour over and dissect and that's part of the appeal of it. But, you know, you can see that like the wine nerd in me gets really excited. 
I can see that you're very excited. Well, because it's just it's a to me it's just like such a like a pure and great thing. And the other thing it blows up is this idea that only red wine is age worthy. So I think a lot of consumers think that you know the greatest you know age worthy wines in the world are from red grapes, and that couldn't be further from the truth. Well, what about Chardonnays and Chablis? You're absolutely right. Those they are age, age right? They, they age, age beautifully. beautifully. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Riesling ages even more beautifully than okay. those rocks. Yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah. We're gonna, I'm going to just say one more thing about Riesling, and then I'm going to ask a couple <laughs> more questions, and we'll bring Alyssa in about 10 minutes. So, okay, so to meet with Riesling, I know you guys love it, and I appreciate your explanation and your love of it. Like, it's, it's exciting. But as you know... So many people, if I say to a song, not hot for the Riesling, they're like, oh, I got one for you. Instead of just being like, okay, what else can we bring you? Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. I, and I mean, I, it's, it, it's not just like it's happened to me once or twice or three times. I mean, I actually, since I gave accolades to Aaron Silverman earlier, one time when I was at Pineapple and Pearls, his very expensive high dining restaurant, I was with two other people. And one of them also does not love Riesling. And he said, any, you know, anything that I should know before we start your service. And we were like, yeah, we don't like Riesling. And he didn't serve us one Riesling. He served us two. Yeah. And I was like, dude. I, so I will say, Nikki, I am a little guilty of that. And you have to, you have to appreciate here, you know, some of these are kind of like evangelists. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, Riesling's a bit of a religion uh, for those of us that love, that love wine. And, and sometimes you can't help but... Right. evangelizing, you are 100% right, you know, um, and I think sometimes people in my position forget that, mm -hmm. you know, at the end of the day, we are curating an experience, but it's not our experience, it is your experience. Right, and, so I'm totally yeah. cool if you're like, hey, I'm going to give you this, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. Gonna, I want you to taste this just to well, open up your mind, but, you know, but anyway. In this, you know, but the slippery slope we fall into is, you know, for the sake of, um, you know, trying to force something, we... You know, you can make the guest feel belittled for the mm -hmm. sake of not appreciating it. Right. And that's that's the last thing in the world. Just not hearing we should, it. Yeah, exactly. That's the last thing in the world we should be about. You right. know, at the at the end of the day, you like what you like and you should feel, you know, every bit as empowered in that as you know, we feel to like Riesling. Yeah, okay. There's nothing inherently right. you know Wrong. good or bad. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. About Riesling as such. It's it's as arbitrary as any other dimension of taste is. Okay, I wanna go in a totally different direction. Yeah, yeah. Because the way you run both your restaurants is sort of um, going to be the way all restaurants have yes. to run. Yes. So can we talk about how you guys came up with service fees and charges and what? So now, Tail Goat is tasting menu only, right? Um, yes, it is. Okay. Revelers Except hours for, are, it should be said, at the bar. People right. can do an a la carte thing at, at Tail Goat. Okay. Yeah. And, but Reveler Hours did not. But how did you come up with, because you guys do a service charge. Across both you, restaurants. Right. right. And uh, you have a program for your employees that is very, um, you know, giving and caring. It's, it, you take the employees into, into, you know, very different than the restaurant industry has in the past. So can we talk about the programs sure. you've set up and how it gets effective? Yeah, I mean, it's always been important to us to take care of the people uh, that work for us. And, you know, as a small business owner, you know, you're creating this, you know, kind of self-contained universe. And, and if you don't take care of your employees, they're not in a position to take care of anyone else. Mm -hmm. um, so we've always offered health insurance. Um, uh, in pre-pandemic world, we paid for half of it. Um, in a post-pandemic world, we pay for all of it. Wow. Um, I mean, I just, I want to stop you so that people... Who are listening who are not in the industry understand that that's not normal in the restaurant industry. yeah and i mean I think that's deeply sad um and i think i i lament um the fact that people don't treat the restaurant industry with the same level of professionalism as they do other other, Any other business yeah, right yeah. and and you know we have always tried to um treat it as a career now mm -hmm. people switch careers a lot you know but it doesn't mean that, you know, when you're in it, you know, it shouldn't be the thing that you're most deeply in invested in. Mm -hmm. um, we had a, a tip wage uh, model prior to pandemic. And when pandemic hit, when we reopened, um, we couldn't ask people to come back and not pay their health care in full, given, you know, what we were asking. And, right. you know, um, the only way that made sense for us at the time was a um, a different model, um, which is kind of like a one fair wage model, mm -hmm. and 
Um, you know, that's something that the industry is grasping with, uh, is, is wrestling with rather. And, um, you know, we talked about that, um, on, on my podcast and, mm-hmm. uh, it is really hard and, and I, um, appreciate both sides of, of the argument, uh, for and against, you know, but a typical so, model. But I think the question the lay person has, yeah, yeah, yeah. who doesn't understand the language and doesn't understand the math of the well, business. I think the bitch of it is it's such a complicated system. And I think a lot of people don't really understand right. how and why it came into being and, and how it affects people on the ground. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. my question is, is how do you, so no tipping? Tipping, they can tip. People, people can add. I and think, and wait, what does it say on the check? And what does it say? Yeah, on the so menu? so on the check, um, you know, people get a bill for their food, and then there's a um, a separate line item for the service fee. And um, how much is the fee? Twenty two percent. Twenty two percent. And okay. and we explain on the menu and you know language that we you know dissected mm-hmm. um, uh, what the 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 service fee goes toward, and I think consumers should understand that legally. That's not money we're pocketing. You right. know, for, for, for operators, that is money that's going directly to the staff. staff. But what's, all what's staff, in, front exactly of the house, back in, of the house. Well, what's important about that is in a tipped wage model, the tips can only be distributed to front of the house personnel. So right. tips can only be distributed to service, which creates this huge inequality between back, in the house. back and front because of the house. Because it ignores yeah. how a restaurant runs. Exactly. It, 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 it makes it seem like... That the servers are the only ones who are exactly. making a proper rate. Exactly. Yeah, it makes it seem like the like you know the face of the restaurant you know is the only worthwhile creature, and right. that couldn't be further from the truth. The the amazing thing about a service fee is that legally we are then allowed to distribute that across the pool of all hourly employees. So okay. legally, that money can't go to salaried employees, and legally, no tips can go to owners. We're not allowed to touch any of that. Okay. Um, uh, but tips are then distributed to everybody evenly if people decide to add on top. On top of the tip. Yeah, exactly. Okay, great. So exactly. it's a 22% service charge and then you can add tip yeah. on top. Yeah. But it pays for but I, all I think things. I think people, I think a lot of consumers imagine that, you know, operators are pocketing this 22% service charge or they're lining their, I think there's people saying yeah they're lining their pockets and laughing all the way to the bank and that could not be further from the truth you know I'm not right. saying that there aren't you know bad eggs and there are bad eggs yeah, and, and, bad eggs, and, listen, exactly. and bad eggs get the press right yeah, so yeah. we all know we all know of restaurateurs who didn't pay people's taxes totally. pay, you know we all know those stories yeah. um, but that exists across all industries of course it does yeah. exactly I mean I think you know, there has historically been more room for malfeasance in the restaurant industry um, because a lot of that money flows under the table. And right. yeah, but, uh, you know, I, I think a, a one kind of fair wage model is an important moment for our industry, an important move toward, you know, professionalization of, of the industry and, and also uh, creating a universe in which employers are better equipped to offer the kind of benefits that, um, staff enjoys across other other industries. So the only question I have to you with that is one of the things you hear from some servers is when it came to Initiative 82 specifically was that if they just if they don't get tips, they're not going to make the kind of money they were making. That's 100 percent true. Okay, that is totally true. They okay. will make less money. Okay. Um, it is a reorientation of the market, and okay. you know it is a reallocation of wages uh, from servers to other people in different support roles. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think that's a necessary adjustment. Um, okay. You know, and I, I can't argue, you know, you with, with, with it, that right? point. Uh, that said, it does uh, give servers uh, regularization of wages that mm-hmm. they don't enjoy otherwise. So if they have a slow month, they get paid the same wage. No matter what. Exactly. You and know? most of them are getting health care, like you said. Yeah. And are not, can now get... Um, either paid sick days or paid vacation days or exactly. things of that nature. So more the structure of the normal corporate world, it, it's sort of doing that to the restaurant industry. Yes. Okay. Yeah, in a, in, a, in a really important way. And I think people sleep on the extent to which um, the notion of tipping itself is a fundamentally racist outgrowth of, um, you know, the Civil War. And, yeah. and it came to this country, you know, and people initially resisted because it was a legacy of a class system in Europe. And, and you know, instituting a tipped wage system here kind of perpetuated that class system. But, mm-hmm. 
it was inherently, you know, built upon race as opposed to class. And, right. um, you know, I don't want to say that, you know, people's hearts are in the wrong place if they want to perpetuate the tipped wage system, but the history of it is really problematic. And I think as operators and as an industry, it's an important moment for us to try to make something different out of this I moment agree. and try to make something better. And I think standardizing wages um, for people in the front and the back of the house and doing it in a more equitable way, in a more consistent way, will ultimately make for a better industry. Now, it might mean that there are fewer places like our restaurant. It might mean that there are more QR codes and stuff like that. I have no doubt that will happen, but I think people will be forced to um, catch up. Yeah, think think more fully about how they are, you know, compensating people, and you know the kinds. Think more fully about what kinds of opportunities they're offering people, you know, as a part of that. And I think you know that's something that you know we haven't done well as an industry historically. No, I mean, listen, during the beginning of the pandemic, when people were really scared. You know, I mean, some of the biggest leaders of Danny Myers, Tom Caligios, and, and, you know, the ones with the loudest voices are the biggest platforms. You know, we're like, we have to change the system. We have to change the system. And there's so much chatter about it, but then nobody was doing it. I mean, everybody was chasing their well, tail. It's, it's really, it's, honestly, it's really, it's really hard. I mean, this is where it, it's fascinating, too, because, like, both Caligio and... Um, uh, Myers. Yeah, they, they, tried, they tried. And then they walked it back. And, and I sympathize with that because on the ground... It can be hard to make, you know, the PL, the math add up. Yeah. Um, I, we feel that as operators and you have to be like really careful about how you distribute hours and stuff like that in a way that you don't if you're not paying people anything and they're relying on tips. Right. Um, you know, so I, I feel that. Um, I think that though, if, um, you know, the enforcement or if the, the, the guideline, you know, is coming from a, a a local government or a state government or whatever, it regularizes, you know, the, the standard and it creates an even playing field for the sake of well, restaurants. Well, then it's that, more like... Exactly. Then it's more like... It's like when we talked about people wearing masks. Exactly. Right? Exactly. It's the law. Think, yeah. You know, it yeah. doesn't matter where a restaurant fell on it except for one Yeah. And, and I mean, honestly, D.C.'s in a really interesting position because we're regionally in, you know, this three different jurisdictional right. kind of like miasma. And... Um, you know, there, there was and is some fear for the sake of, uh, DC restaurateurs that people, you know, our servers will leave and go to the burbs. I mean, but you know, that's the same thing when, uh, they were doing the smoking. Yeah, totally. smoking. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I'll never forget Lynn Bro being like, I mean, this, they're just not going to come to the city. They'll just stay in their suburbs. And I was like, well, they, and of course they didn't. Yeah. I mean, it didn't, it's always a shift. Change is hard. Yeah. And 100%. people need to adapt. I think the other thing too for us is that we always try to tell our staff that there are easier places to work. Um, you know, you could probably make, you know, more coin elsewhere. You know, not a lot. We pay, you know, fair wages, but our mm -hmm. hope is that we treat people well and you will learn here. You will, you know, you have room to grow here and we will invest in you. And I think that's, you know, how we should be operating as, as businesses. Totally agree with you. All right. Alyssa is going to come over. Okay, Bill, so. Uh, well, so. Um, let's start with wine number one. So wine number one is fascinating to me. Um, it has this oxidative streak. Um, it has a richness to it that I find hugely fascinating. It's almost Burgundian, but to me, it reads more like Rioja Blanco. Um, so it has this like, uh, like pine nutty mm. um, salinity that I associate with Bura, um, uh which is, I it think. It does have a Madeira kind of. Yeah, like, salinity thing, yeah, yeah. At the end and, of it. And should, should be said that, like, I'm probably totally wrong for the sake of this, um, but <laughs> You're covering that's, your ass. that's where my, that's where my, this is where my head went. So if I was like making a final guess, I would say this is like, you know, 2017 Rio Blanco. Okay. Very close. This is E. Oh, I'm close. I know that wine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is Rio Blanco. It is Rio Blanco, but it is, it is done with Sherry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, great, great. Uh, so I, I sell this wine though, so it's kind of not fair. Okay, uh, yeah. but that's okay. It's a great choice. I love this one. Yay! 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 All right. Uh, uh, this Second is, one. This is definitely Riesling. Um, the question is where and right. when. So right. um, uh, the when part is the most interesting. How old do you think this is? I mean, you're asking the wrong person. I, I don't know. I uh, so it's not so musty that it's old as fuck. I mean, this is like, you know, mature, but not past its prime. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say this is like 
somewhere in the 2008-2012 range. Okay. Um, but that could be overstating it because uh, it probably tastes a little more developed than it was. I think it's Riesling Spätlese. So Spätlese is a, a designation for the sweetness of the Riesling. Okay. Um, uh, and um, uh, this is German. The question is where in Germany is it from? Mm-hmm. Um it's a little richer than I'd expect of Mosul Valley Riesling, so I'm going to put it in like the Rheinessen or something, but I could be totally wrong. So this is a 2014 Rheingau. Ah, oh, Rheingau, damn it. Ah. Although this is a... Is it or... This is a Grosselager. Um, it is uh, from a... There's R.S. Grand here. It is a, a Grand Cru It's 13% alcohol. Oh, so right. I, yeah, so it's not technically... They didn't at least uh, rate it as a spotlight, but it's definitely what, if you're home there for a long time. Yeah. So... That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, it's showing really well. Great. Thank Let's you so much for sharing this. All right. uh, Thanks, Alyssa. That was Rheingau. so much fun. <laughs> uh, for, for the sake of your listeners, the Rheingau is essentially adjacent to the Rheinhessen. The Rheingau is the birth, the mythical birthplace of Riesling. Oh, all so right. that makes sense to that. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. All right. Well, that was so much fun. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. So tell everybody where they can find you, please. Both your establishments, where to find you on Instagram, and your podcast. Uh, thanks so much. So okay. um, physically, um, uh-huh. I can't promise I'll be there, but uh, there'll be wines that I've selected, and I can't speak highly enough of the people that I work with. Um, so we are at Tail of Goat, which uh, is in Adams Morgan. Uh, we are on Lanier, uh, which is a, a lovely side street, as you said, but our address physically is 1827 Adams Mill. Uh, and then Revelers Hour is on Columbia Road across the street from the Lion Hotel, uh, 1827 Columbia Road. Uh, Tail of Goat's a little kind of fancier for the sake of a tasting menu. Um, Revelers is uh, wine slash pasta bar. I'm the worst millennial in the world. I don't have the gram, um, but uh, the restaurants do. It's Tail of Goat, at Tail of Goat, at Revelers Hour. And then I have a podcast. It's called The Universe in a Glass. Uh, on uh, Instagram, we are at Universe in a Glass. Excellent. Thank you so much, Bill. Thanks for joining me. And thank you, too, for joining me today. Oh, my God, it just got darker in here. Um, this is Nikki Nellis for Industry Night. I'm going to be off air for a week because I am going to St. Martin, but follow me at N-Y-C-C-I-N-E-L-L-I-S for all of my fun travels, all my fun food, and all the fun things that are happening in my life. Of course, you're still going to go to the list, com, the online e-zine that tells you about absolutely everything happening in the D.C. metro area. And there are more winter activations and events happening than you can possibly imagine igloos to sit in chalets to dine in ice rinks and etc it is all happening all around the dc metro area um and tune into foodie and the beast every sunday at 11 a.m on 1500 a.m or click on the link of course and you can uh always hear us any time of day uh i want to thank the wine layer for hosting us today i want to thank bill for joining me and i want to do what i do at the end of every show is remind everybody to take their kindness pills especially with the holiday season coming up Please remember that your servers are doing the best they can. They do not want you to have a good, a bad time. They want you to have a good time. And uh, staffing shortages are real. Oh, one last reminder, DC Cocktail Week, right after Thanksgiving. You don't want to miss it. Like over 35 area restaurants are doing fabulous cocktails with little bites. It's all put on by the Restaurant Association of Metropolitan Washington. So don't forget that as well. Uh, be safe out there and have a delicious week. Produced by HeartCast Media.